As you've probably heard by now, we've teamed up with BetMGM this season. We'll be using BetMGM lines to make all of our picks, and we'll have special offers for our listeners each week. If you haven't signed up for BetMGM yet, use bonus code THEATHLETIC, and you'll get a one-year subscription to The Athletic, plus up to a $1,500 first bet offer on your first wager with BetMGM. Here's how it works. Download the BetMGM app and sign up using bonus code THEATHLETIC. Make your first deposit of at least $10, place your first bet on any game, and claim your voucher for a one-year subscription to The Athletic. See BetMGM.com for terms. U.S. promotional offers not available in D.C., Mississippi, New York, Nevada, Ontario, or Puerto Rico. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. Available in the U.S. Call 877-8-HOPE-NY or text HOPE-NY 467-369 in New York. Call 1-800-NEXT-STEP in Arizona. 1-800-327-5050 in Massachusetts. 1-800-BETS-OFF in Iowa. 1-800-270-7117 for confidential help in Michigan. 1-800-981-0023 in Puerto Rico. First bet offer for new customers only in partnership with Kansas Crossing Casino and Hotel. Don't forget, if you haven't signed up for BetMGM yet, use bonus code THEATHLETIC and you'll get a one-year subscription to The Athletic plus up to a $1,500 first bet offer on your first wager. It's winter, and you can now get almost anything you need for the coldest months of the year delivered with Uber Eats. What do we mean by almost? Well, you can't get a ski slope delivered, but you can get dish soap delivered. Sunshine, that's a no. But a bottle of wine, that's a yes. A snow angel, sorry, no, but angel hair pasta. Uber Eats can definitely get you that. Get almost, almost anything delivered with Uber Eats. Order now. Alcohol and select markets. Product availability may vary by region. See app for details. The race is on, and Lewis Hamilton clinched his record-equaling seventh world championship with a stunning victory in the Turkish Grand Prix from six on the grid in what was one of the most gripping races of the season. But how did he do it, and what went wrong for longtime leader Lance Stroll? I'm Ed Straw, and joining me to answer those questions and many more are Scott Mitchell and Mark Hughes. Scott, hello, and it is just remarkable to see history being made on days like this, isn't it? We've got to go straight in on Hamilton, seven times champion. No, we've got to go straight in on the ludicrous neon pink background that you've got for the recording of this podcast. Are you um, are you recording this podcast in the middle, in like a quiet room at an all night rave? It does look like it, doesn't it? It's very strange lighting, and everything's a bit of an odd colour. Like my my shirt is disconcertingly not the colour it actually is. It's it's very odd. I'm in a I'm in an airport hotel at Istanbul Airport that's actually in the terminal. So it's got no natural light or anything. If I, were, if I had a window, I'd be looking looking down on the check-in desks. Uh, it's, it's funny. I, I think they've just decided to, to make the the decor of the hotel a little bit like a, uh, you know, on flights when they have the kind of, oh, it's it's becoming morning and you have that weird sort of twilight they uh, they bring in. It feels a little bit, uh, feels a bit like that. But yeah, it's uh, it's unusual. It's a very strange setup. There's like the, the bed's at a weird angle and it's sort of a bed chair combination and the desk I'm on's like, you pull it out of the wall from below the television. It's all very, uh, very compact, but it does the job. That's the uh, that's the important thing. If it has descended into an all night rave, then that suggests that your millennial barn dance wasn't particularly well pleased. Exactly. Well, I didn't heed Alan Partridge's warnings there, uh, but there was a question in there, Scott. Before you get on to the fascination with my uh, my Istanbul hotel room, which was about Lewis Hamilton. Yeah, I think we have to uh, give credit where it's due, and um, while while Hamilton's Critics are always sort of looking for a reason to to argue that his numbers have been padded out by having the the best car. You know, he's the 
He's the, a seven-time world champion now for the same reason he won uh, the Turkish Grand Prix that a few drivers seem to be sort of in contention to win at different points because he's he's except, exceptionally good. And when others tend to make mistakes, you can usually rely on Hamilton not to. He just uh, He's like a metronome, isn't he? The, the driver he's developed into is just phenomenally quick and phenomenally reliable. Yeah, can't say fairer than that. Absolutely astonishing achievement. And Mark, you were there for Schumacher's seventh title in 2004. There for Hamilton's breakthrough season in 2007. Clearly, Hamilton had the potential for great things. But do you think you'd have believed he'd have racked up these numbers so quickly on that famous day when he made his debut in Australia, if we told you then? I would have said it was possible, actually, because he made such a sensational debut and it looked so special coming through. But it is one thing having the potential to do it and another one to actually rack up enormous numbers like that. You need to be, you know, in the right right place and then get your bum in the right car and be there for a long long time um but that's exactly what he's done i mean it looked you know after seb's fourth title on the bounce at the end of 13 it would have said that you know it's looking as though lewis is never gonna rack up the stats that his his level deserves but um yeah it, it did come good for him with that with that move to mercedes and um yeah, we're just, we're just continuing to see the, um, the, the the outcome. It's still unfolding. Well, we're going to take a really in-depth look at Lewis Hamilton's career on next week's podcast, because I think to do it justice, we do need to devote a full episode to it. But that's our slightly perfunctory hailing of a remarkable achievement. Amazing day. There is a huge amount to cover from the race. Uh, so, Mark, how did Hamilton manage to win a race that looked like it could have gone to any number of drivers at various times? Ultimately, because his car was still the fastest car um, and it could combine um, tyre durability with pace, but it took a long time for that to become apparent because of the weird gripless surface of, of, the, of this track. And so uh, it took about seven consecutive laps before the Mercedes tyres were up to temperature, which, which is why he was five and a half seconds off the pace and qualifying because you don't get to do seven consecutive laps, of course. So by the time he'd done that, and then um, he'd, in the first wet shod phase, he'd, his times were quicker than strolls after lap six, I think. So that was just on the cusp of having to change to the Indus. So then he had to do it all over again. So he's, he's a whole pit stop's worth of time behind stroll at that point. And he had, you know, Verstappen and Vettel and, and two racing points ahead of him. Um, but then it was just a case of Mercedes weren't intending to change tyres again. They were, they, they, they were on, on the pit wall pretty sure that they now had, now that they're on the inter, um, they now had the tyre with which they could get to the end as long as there weren't any safety cars or unexpected rain showers, that sort of thing. And they were quite confident that he he would have the performance to do it. But he just had to remain patient, and you know it, it, we saw him for a time becoming a little bit frustrated. I think when he couldn't get past Vettel, but he, he didn't do anything rash in the car. But he was he was urging the team to rethink the strategy at that point. But they stayed firm, and they were right to do so. And then he just yeah he just turned it on, and he, he absolutely executed a perfect race, and probably a couple of if he's strategic decisions made at Red Bull and Racing Point, but ultimately neither of those cars had the pace of the Mercedes 
and they couldn't have done the strategy that he did with um with, with that performance and that's he, he just it just played out as it did um, but it was unusual because um the the the, the the surface had created this this weird disparity in the early laps between the cars. You've broken it down very well there in terms of the constituent elements and almost why it was inevitable Hamilton would win this race. But this is the thing with Hamilton, isn't it? Very often we see situations where you can say, well, this driver's got the cars, the tyres, this should happen, the race should come to them. And it doesn't happen. But Hamilton is so good at making sure that when the, the stars should align, he makes sure they do line up and, and delivers in it because lots of drivers would have found ways in his position to not win that race, wouldn't they? Absolutely, yes. And um, there were many temptations there that he could have took, which he didn't, and um, he was right not to. And we saw um, Max Verstappen, who at times looked extraordinary this weekend, um, particularly during um, some of the early Q2 uh, when he was two seconds faster than anyone on in, on the wet, in the wet. Um we saw situations there where he could have um, benefited from being a bit more patient and um, that compromised his race significantly. But I, I don't think even that, even without the um, the spin when he was trying to pass Perez, um, there's nothing that suggests he, he would have been able to beat Hamilton. One of the things that I think Hamilton's really, really good at doing is just having that sort of long read, the perception of sort of how a race is going to unfold and he knows sort of where he needs to be at different points and he, he knows sort of where he needs to push. He knows where he needs to sort of hold back. And he's got that, it's just that supreme ability with, with the, with the tires, you know, we've talked about it on the, the, the podcast before, and I'm sure we'll get into it in a, in, in the more in-depth one as well, but just that sort of tire whisperer sort of state that Hamilton gets in where I think Mercedes sometimes struggle to put it into words. You know, he just, he can just feel it. He knows sort of how far to go. And you know, there was this phenomenon where, you took the intermediates to the point where they actually went past the point of being bad intermediates and actually became quite a decent hybrid intermediate slick tire. And it's just that ability that I'm, I'm convinced that there's a reason that Hamilton and Perez were the drivers that were able to make that work and, and other drivers weren't. And obviously we'll get into Sergio Perez later, but yeah, Hamilton is just, he knows when to take a risk and he knows when, when not to the, the closest thing he did to not, judging it completely perfectly today was at the start into turn one when obviously he 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 went inside the 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 the, the Renault and there was what it looked like if there wasn't the slightest bit of contact he 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 forced the other Renault wide but even that was a incredibly low speed move it was hardly um barreling down the inside like for example Valtteri Bottas did half a lap later that ended up accidentally ruining his own race yeah it was really only a little bit on that first lap because he had an off on it later on dropped from third to fifth, and then he went deep into the final complex and dropped back to sixth. So the first lap didn't go perfectly, but yeah, then it did very much come to him thereafter. And I guess we we should kind of spool back a little bit to qualifying in terms of explaining why Mercedes looked nowhere in qualifying. Red Bull were looking strong, and then suddenly Racing Point came into it. So maybe if we kind of go back to Saturday to understand that Mercedes pace mark. Yeah, it was just in this transition from um, the, the the wet tyres to the inters that uh, caught Red Bull out. Um, ultimately, the Red Bull was a faster car than the racing point, but there was a particular little window um, where it was on that changeover point um, where it was a bit vulnerable to the racing point because the racing point was the best 
switching the tires on. It had instant, pretty much instant um, tire temp. No matter which tire you put it on, it could switch it on. And the Red Bull took maybe three, two or three laps. And in the conditions at the beginning of Q3 were right on that cusp. And that Stroll, X, you know, took great advantage of that and delivered perfectly. And Max was extremely hacked off. Um, that you know the circumstances had conspired when he'd been quickest in every session and looked miles quicker than everybody else in the wet that it should play out by this. And I don't know. To me, it, it looked as though he still he was taking that that mood with him into the race, that frustration, that desire to prove that he could easily demolish everyone. You know that that, that it, I'm sure he felt that. You know, in, in Q2, and I'm sure he he felt that it. it circumstances had conspired to prevent him showing that and I, th I think that colored his race because his race had a lot of emotion in it I think and um, that didn't help him today but really it was just about the traits of the car it was exaggerated by this weird low grip surface and then you know, the fact that it was raining and, and cold as well but yeah the, the, the differences in cars is, is that we normally see um, on a conventional weekend, or, you know, they're measured in tenths, aren't they? But when you can't get in the right tyre window, they're measured in whole chunk seconds, you know. So, um, yeah, Max had just was just about on the cusp of getting getting the inters working, and was probably set for for a to to um, beat Stroll's pole time, but um, didn't quite do it because it was still a bit edgy, and he had a he had a couple of moments. So it was there for the taking, but he didn't do it. So that's that's where they were. The the Mercs were, as I say, five and a half seconds off. Um, just not nowhere near getting the tire, the rear tire temperatures in particular with with the problem. Um, so yeah, they, they knew the car was quick, but they knew also that it wouldn't it wouldn't do it in the amount of laps you have available in qualifying. And that was just something that caught out the traits of that particular car. Um, on this weird weekend with the very low grip surface. And Verstappen, of course, was one of a, a batch of drivers who looked like they could threaten for victory in this. So we'll we'll work our way through them. But we should, I guess, start with Lance Stroll. Scott, really good job to take pole position. I've been critical of Lance Stroll at times, but I've always been impressed by him in wet conditions. Yeah, the tyres were in the window, etc. But he did it when it was on the, the table and, and got a pole position that will be remembered for a very long time, didn't he? Yeah, he did. Um, it's not the first time we've seen it. He's uh, he, he's very good at... Um, I think I think he's very good at just sort of having the... When he has the confidence, he can properly throw himself into a situation. I think that's one of the reasons he's so good. We've seen him be so good on opening laps as well. Sometimes he'll put his car where other drivers feel like he's asking for a crash, but by and large, he gets away with it. And... Yeah, this isn't the first time we've seen him do well in, in the wet. Obviously, Monza was it in 20, 2017, um, was a was a starring performance in qualifying uh, again. This one was just um there there is that element of of a few cars were just able to get the tires working on Saturday. The racing point was one of them for the reasons that, that Mark explained, but 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 Lance had to do the job and just that execution under pressure can't be underestimated. Yes, when the tyres are working, you do have just so much extra grip and confidence that you, you're you not walking the same tightrope as others, maybe. But the, the, there's immense pressure there, especially as he had to 
had to pull it out of the bag at, uh, at the very end. He knew that Verstappen would be coming coming at him, and when Verstappen's been the quickest all weekend, and he's in a Red Bull, and it's Max Verstappen, you know you can't really afford to leave anything on the line. And fair play to to, to Stroll because he has come in for for criticism. He's been on an, he what had been on an awful run going into that weekend. So to actually string it together the way he did, I reckon that was a bit of a bit of a relief for, on on his side. But it was it was a display of the quality of driver that is in there. It's just uh, what's the polite way of putting it? Not necessarily always on the surface. Yeah, it's it's refining it for dry conditions. That's the main challenge. And I, I was pleased for Stroll because, like I say, even though I've I've been fairly critical of him at times, it's when he's underachieved and underdelivered that he's frustrated me and he certainly didn't do that on Saturday so I was pleased to see him him doing that very very memorable poll but we'll have to get into what went wrong in his race mark he led 32 laps he made that second stop to take a fresh set of intermediates uh, while leading or well, that point Perez had reeled him in and looked like he was about to to make a pass but then just was a disaster for Stroll, wasn't it? And he he slumped down to ninth place, couldn't get the intermediates working for a long time in that stint and never really found brilliant pace. It did get better. But, you know, he's driving around at times doing 1 minute 47s when people were doing 141s and 140s, wasn't he? Yeah. um, So essentially he'd, in hindsight, um, his pace should have probably been a bit more controlled by the team, by the, the pit wall. Um, and you know, on that first set of inters, so, um, he essentially took too much out of them and ensured he did need another set. Um, and in hindsight, the way to do the race was the way Perez did it and, and, and preserved that original set. Because what happens when you go on a fresh set of inters on a, on a drying track is that they tend to get ripped apart because they've still, they're still got a lot of tread on them and that, that, that forms a sort of leverage effect. And they can really grip on the, on the bond with the track surface, and that just tends to pull them pull them apart. Whereas if you're on a, a set which has been nicely and progressively worn down from wet conditions into dry conditions, it just transitions nicely into a eventually into a, to a slick, and it, it can give you great you know great pace throughout. But you have to make sure that you keep it in shape long enough that you don't need to get on onto a new set so um basically that was the downfall of of lance and perez was gonna do that he, he was explaining after the race but they he was informed by his engineer that lance's new windows it, it, it grained almost immediately and that's what veered um perez's guys away from that strategy and also perez had, had given himself that option by not pushing so hard in, in the previous stint and so, yeah, that's that's where that's essentially where Stroll's race went wrong. He just had no pace at all on his second set of inters because they were just um, it was unsuitable to put new inters on 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 such a drying track. Yeah, I was listening to Perez's radio when that was happening, and yeah, that's exactly what happened. It was very much a a pit wall call, and all credit to Racing Point for changing their mind quickly, should we say? Because sometimes we see teams not doing that, not reading the signs quickly enough, but they they saw it coming, which was positive. But a shame for Stroll because. He did a good job while he was in the lead. Yeah, he did not look after his intermediates as well as he should have done. But as you say, the pit wall could have done a little bit to help there. But ninth place is not a not a great return for him. And to be fair to him, after the checkered flag, he was saying over the radio, it, he wasn't just blaming that that final stint. He was he sort of said, yeah, we've also got to understand why the 
pace wasn't there later in the in the previous stint. So I'm sure he'll he'll learn a bit from that. It's probably a positive weekend overall, despite the the fact he didn't uh, deliver the result. And actually, lots of those drivers in that group did make the stop for the the second set of intermediates. But I guess the counterpoint, as you said, is Perez. Scott, you've been uh, you've been tweeting in recent days about how ridiculous it is Perez hasn't got a drive for next year. He's a high quality driver, a proven performer with sponsorship behind him, and he's he's currently without a drive for next year, which is pretty inconceivable. Ninth podium finish that is for for Perez. He's he's edging up towards Nick Heidfeld's record of thirteen podiums without a, a victory, but again, just showing his class. I think Perez is really driving exceptionally well as good as ever if not better than ever um, I asked him after the race if he feels that this is the best form he's shown in Formula 1 um, and he says he feels that he is he is at his peak as, at the moment as a driver but also what he brings uh, in terms of experience and just sort of how he executes and, and, and that sort of thing I I, I did say in, in, in the build up to the, this uh, this race um, I'd just been sort of looking at looking back over the season I just thought it was quite and I thought it was just quite interesting, no, nothing more than that, that uh, Perez is one of two drivers, two full-time 2020 drivers who has scored a point in uh, in every race he started. And the other was about to win the title. Um, and yeah, I just did it. I, ha- I shared a little reminder that, because <laughs> I said that that, mo- that made it just absolutely ridiculous that, that Perez doesn't have a drive for next year. So after what he did today, I just did a little reminder to say, by the way, it's still ridiculous that he doesn't yet have a drive for, for, for next year. I mean, he's he's in a point where he is waiting to see whether or not Alex Albon does a good enough job um, for Rebel to keep him on. Uh, and it's almost like whatever Perez does doesn't matter because Rebel will, will know what it's going to get if it chose Perez um, over Albon or over Hulkenberg, Nico Hulkenberg, who's the other contender for that seat. But a, a performance like this is just, well, he just he he can't make a better case, can he? And this this is why I feel it would be ridiculous if he if he's out of a drive. I actually think it would be as far as very privileged, wealthy person can't drive a lovely F one car for a living can be an injustice. Then Perez not being in F one next year would be an injustice. Yeah, certainly agree with that. Great for him to finish second. Just a, a quick fact, he's 31.633 seconds behind Hamilton in the final classification. And Hamilton was at one stage, I think the most he ever was in any of the mini sectors off the lead was 24.5 seconds. So that tells you how big a swing it was in, in Hamilton's race. But yeah, great job from Sergio Perez. And Mark, Sebastian Vettel, third place. That's basically the first thing he's had to really smile about this season. Great first lap, gained eight places. So how, how did this happen for Vettel, especially with that frenetic action at the end, with him him nicking the position off uh, off Leclerc, who, who for a moment looked like he was going to be second. Yeah, um, as you say, it was a, the foundation was a great first lap. So he he qualified reasonably well. He he, he stuck at eleventh, um, which you know for a Ferrari in its current form is, is okay. It was ahead of Leclerc. He made a great start and he took advantage of the the bit of confusion between the Renaults and, and Bottas at, at the first corner. Um, and then, yeah, he maintained a good pace, took advantage of Hamilton's error on the, on the first lap. Um, had a bit of a queue behind him in the first stint, but just put his car in all the right places, really, and just um, did a, a, a really, really nice job. Um, Ferrari pulled both the cars in early for, um, you know, for the, to get onto the Inders, 
which meant that they were quite early on their second set of inters. So they didn't actually, even though I was saying before that getting your original inters was probably a better strategy, um, at least they got early onto their second set. And I don't think that car is particularly aggressive on the front tyres in the way that a, a Racing Point or a Red Bull is anyway. And so they didn't really um, suffer the, the, the ill effects of, of doing that in the way that the Racing Points and the Red Bulls did. Or the, the, sorry, Stroll and the Red Bulls did. Um, and they, yeah, they had pretty pretty good pace. They 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 it, today was all about tight. All weekend was all about tight temperature. And the Ferrari is pretty good at putting temperature into its tires. We saw this at the the Nurburgring where it was very cold as well. And uh, yeah, so eventually uh, Leclerc got past. Um, his pace was actually his race pace was actually um, better. And uh, the but Seb was still with him. And then, of course, um, Leclerc tried a, a move on Perez on the last lap. It didn't work, and Seb was there to pick up the pieces. So, uh, and, and really well-deserved podium, and, and really nice to see him back there because it's not hasn't it hasn't been um, it hasn't been edifying, has it? W- watching him struggle so much. Now, Scott, I I heard Scott lambasting Scott. You weren't lambasting yourself. I heard Seb lambasting you in the in the press conference. I wasn't really properly listening because I was on a. Uh, on a, a zoom to Daniel Ricardo at the time, but I did hear Vettel taking a bit of umbrage at your question. So, can you explain both to me and and the listeners exactly what you said? Yeah, basically, uh, I asked. Uh, we were waiting for Hamilton to come in because he was his time was being swallowed up by the TV crews before the actual FIA press conference, and so we started with just Perez and and, and Vettel. And I wanted to ask a question to both of them, given the significance of their results today. So I said to, I asked at the same time, um, I asked Checo sort of whether this is the best he feels he's performing in Formula One. And then to Seb, I said that this had been a a season in which he's, um, a season in which he, that, that has been difficult for him. Uh, so does he feel that this result is vindication that he is still the driver of the quality that won four world titles and countless uh, number of race wins as well? Uh, and <laughs> Checo gave quite a nice answer to his part. <laughs> and Seb just sort of said, I'm quite shocked at the way you phrased your question, which shocked me because I didn't feel like I'd asked a particularly uh, nasty question to Seb, but I think he might have interpreted it as me saying, you've been rubbish this year. You're not the driver you used to be. Does this prove otherwise? And uh, but But we had... Um, we had a follow-up uh, Ferrari media session a little later and uh, I, I wanted to ask Seb a, a follow-up question anyway. So I took that opportunity to apologise to him for any misunderstanding with the phrasing of my original question and then hoped that my uh, second question was a little bit more understandable. And he gave me a nice answer, he, which uh, which I took to mean, okay, I don't hate you anymore. So that's good. I don't think he's going to punch me next time I see him. But he'll, next time I see him won't be until testing next year maybe. So... Um, I suspect I'll, I would like to think he'll have forgotten by then. Yeah, it's difficult to throw a punch by Zoom. If it was, I'd be throwing them at you during the podcast all the time. But uh, no, only raise hands on uh, on Zoom. I should point out, by the way, that I am actually very happy to see Seb on the podium because it's been really difficult to see what he's gone through this year. I was really worried that he would be one of the disappointments of the year from the point of view that he would either have a brilliant season and then it would be a shame to lose him from a, a race-winning, title-challenging team or he'd have a terrible season and it wouldn't be a fitting farewell for a driver of his quality leaving Ferrari. And obviously it's been looking like the latter. So I'm really pleased because 
I really rate Seb. I really like him as an, an individual. I think he brings an, an enormous amount to Formula One. I'm glad he's staying next year and I'm glad he's got himself into a competitive package and an interesting project. And I'm super happy for him and, and impressed that he's been able to rally after what's been an awful season and put in the quality of performance that he did at Istanbul. Yeah, it's a great story. I'm, I'm pleased he's just got on the podium even once in this farewell Ferrari season. I have to say, I did also enjoy Charles Leclerc post-race. He was uh, in full-on Leclerc kicking himself territory where he was he was taking no solace for the, the error he made right at the end when he looked like he was uh, he was going to get second and then uh yeah Vettel managed Vettel had been closing on him managed to uh managed to sneak past but any attempt to give Leclerc any solace you know still a good result he just wasn't having it said no rubbish my mistake which is what I quite like about uh Charles Leclerc it was a funny weekend from him actually because he seemed to struggle in qualifying he had that slightly unnecessary clash with Ocon in free practice as well uh good race though but perhaps not quite the uh the weekend Charles Leclerc hoped for shall we jump down a little bit and look at the Red Bulls. We've talked about Verstappen a fair bit in sixth place and Alex Albon in seventh, but Scott, Mark earlier said that he felt Max carried a little bit of that frustration from qualifying over into the race. I'm certainly inclined to agree with that because even with all the problems, he still could have got pole. And it was part. It was a big part of the tyres, but I think he also probably still knew in him that there was, he could just have got it if things had gone a little bit better. What did you make of what was a... Pretty eventful and unusual race for Verstappen in terms of amount of offs and little errors. It wasn't very clean, was it? I think um, I think we see this sometimes from Max, where when he almost like he feels like he it's not that he feels he's entitled to a performance, but he just feels like something that should be in his control isn't, and it just seems to gnaw away at him, and he 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 sort of gets riled up by the fact that it's not going how he feels it should be going. Um, I'm thinking like uh, that that practice shunt in Monaco, for example, was it in 2018 in in, in FP3, um, and 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 little things like little things like the mistakes today and sort of the the mistake in qualifying that ultimately cost him pole. So so he just sort of gets a little bit ragged, and I I think the the bit that obviously ruined his race today was the spin behind Perez. He's really lucky that that didn't end up in a in a in a shunt and a a big bit of damage and all he had to do was uh you know shed a lot of race time and then have to come into the pits for a new set of tires but uh whether it would have let him win the race obviously doesn't look that way because the conditions swung towards the mercedes but anyway max was not making the percentage play there and one could argue that because he's not in a title fight he doesn't need to make percentage plays he just needs to give all or nothing or he just needs to take an all-or-nothing mentality because he's just trying to get race wins. What It doesn't matter to him if he gets another second or a third place. If there's a win on the table, he's going to give absolutely everything to go for it. And I guess that's laudable to an extent, and it's understandable to an extent, but I don't think trying to follow Perez that closely through the kink at, um, what's that case, is it turn, turn 10 um, at Istanbul? I, in those conditions, that that's that's not a that's not a smart decision he's not going to lose out a huge amount by lifting slightly and it was just weird you know he went to the right hand side as well presumably for a bit of visibility but he's compromised his line through the corner and there were a few other times as well where he ran wide but he kept his foot in when he was going over like painted tarmac and run off and it's just it's just one of those performances where you're like this is this is the sort of thing that you just don't seem to quite have a handle on 
And if you were in a title fight, maybe that would be different because your mindset would be different. When you see it in isolation like that, it's just a few little mistakes here and there that that add up to what looks like a slightly frustrated racing driver at times. I think this weekend as a whole was quite frustrating for him because apart from the race he won at Silverstone, it feels like this was the first weekend where he had actually had expectations. And I reckon that's what sort of brought that sort of negative side out of him because when you have expect when you don't have high expectations, you can't you can't fail to live up to them. Whereas this weekend he had those expectations and it didn't quite go the way he expected. Yeah, he got a little bit grabby, I think, potentially. It was a little bit disappointing to see, but there were things going against Red Bull. Mark, the other Red Bull of Alex Alban, seventh place. He had a a decent weekend. There was points at the weekend where he was very quick. He was still kind of two seconds behind Verstappen through qualifying. I think it's 2.3 in the end. He's had this stay of execution with Red Bull now saying that they're going to decide right at the end of the year. Had a spin. Is this a big advancement of his cause or is he just sort of treading water with a with a with an okay weekend that was probably slightly better than average weekend for him by the standards of his own season um it's not didn't do anything that's gonna um clearly shout out that they should keep him um i mean looked looked for a time um that he was it was going very well but then you know the Strategically, I think they just they weren't quite their, their usual sharp self. Uh, Red Bull, I don't think they recognised early enough that the um, the strategy was to sh- should have should have been to maintain the same set of inters. Um, obviously, Max couldn't do that once he'd flat spotted his, but I, I don't think they um, that that was necessarily the the way to run Alex's race either. I think had they. Had they switched on earlier to to the the, the Perez Hamilton type of strategy, um, he could have probably grabbed something quite spectacular out of it. I think um, he maybe could have been up there with Perez or certainly Vettel by the end. Um, but yeah, he didn't do anything particularly wrong. But it just it just didn't you know didn't, he didn't do anything to to make his case obvious, particularly on a day when Perez was so good. Yeah, it's a shame. There was a moment when the race was coming to him, and I was thinking, oh, there could just be a chance to do something special here. But yeah, it's uh, it got away from him uh, a little bit, and part of that is down to the car and the way it was working the tyres. But yeah, decent weekend. We know we know Albin can do that sort of thing. He needed something a little bit more extraordinary. Well, the driver I skipped to go to the Red Bulls was Carlos Sainz in in fifth place. It was actually a very good day for McLaren in the end with Sainz fifth and Lando Norris eighth. They'd struggled in qualifying, hadn't made Q3. They'd both got penalties, Sainz for impeding and Norris for a yellow flag infringement. But we quite often see Sainz do this in tricky conditions, Scott. Just a really good drive in in the wet, made good gains in the second half of the race, came through to fifth place and and banked valuable points almost from nowhere, you could say. I mean, to finish, what was it, less than three seconds off of uh, second place, when you consider where the McLaren was in qualifying, that's a pretty remarkable result. And yeah, as you say, it's just another quietly professional job from from signs. Exactly the sort of performance that means that even though Vettel finished on the podium, so you could argue, ah, finally we're seeing exactly the sort of asset that Ferrari's losing with Vettel leaving. I can't imagine Ferrari are looking at that too sadly when they see the guy in fifth place and the the quality of performances that that Sainz is able to produce. This This is why he is one of the best drivers in the midfield and why he's earned the big move that, that he's getting next year to Ferrari. 
Yeah, he's done this in these conditions before. Going right back to Toro Rosso days, he's often popped up with these kind of performances. And Lando Norris did a good job to come through to eighth. I don't think he expected points the way the race started off because I think he went into anti-stall at the start and yeah, went nowhere really on the, on the first lap. But again, came through up to up to eighth place. And, and that's that's important for McLaren because obviously this is a really significant weekend in terms of that battle for third in the Constructors' Championship Racing Point have moved up to third place on 154 points. McLaren a fourth on 149 points, but Renault were the ones who took the really, really big hit. They're down in fifth on 136 points. Now, having been up in third and looking favourites to potentially have a, have a good run at, at, at third place. Mark, what did you make of what went wrong for Renault? Obviously, Ricardo got a point for 10th just ahead of Ocon. It was fairly obvious what went wrong for Ocon, but it, it it was one of those ones that for Ricardo, he said the first hundred meters of the race went really well, and then it started to go a bit wrong. Yeah, for him. yeah. I mean, it was um, it, it just didn't seem to be again. It's all about tire performance, um, and it, it it seemed to struggle initially to a bit like the Mercedes to to get the performance, but then it didn't. When it did, it didn't seem to hang on to it in the way that the Mercedes or or Perez's racing point did. And, and normally, Ricardo is fantastic at combining tire life with pace so if if it's not doing that you would assume it's a trait of the car on the day rather than the, the drivers and um yeah he was defending for a long time from signs but ultimately just didn't have the grip to hold them off and, and spun trying to do so so yeah just uh, yeah just he didn't i don't think he really had anything he could he could work with and um he just salvaged a point out of it and it, that's just where i think where it was this weekend yeah, just one of those weekends. And Ocon, as he had that spin on the first lap, and then he was uh, then he was hit and got a puncher by Valtteri Bottas. We'll probably come on to Bottas a little bit later. So Ocon down in eleventh place, outside the points. Yeah, it's just so difficult in these conditions. If if it's not working for you, it's just not going to work. And there are a number of teams who are were really struggling. If you look behind, Daniel Kvyat and Pierre Gasly basically spent most of the race in about the same place. The AlphaTauri wasn't getting the tires working. They struggled in qualifying. And it just it just never switched on for them at all this weekend, and they they basically just drove around. Uh, Kvyat said it was uh, a bit disappointing to kind of go through all that effort, shall we say, to get to the end of the race, and uh, and you get absolutely nothing. Gasly said a a similar kind of thing, so they were twelfth and thirteenth, and Valtteri Bottas fourteenth place. Now Scott, it went wrong really for Bottas at the at the first corner, and then at the ninth corner, I think on the first lap, wasn't it? Uh, yeah. Um- he he was already um he was already running a bit wide into turn one and sort of having he wasn't having his own moment I don't think but he was sort of at risk of a moment and then as a uh, as one of the uh, as Esteban Ocon's I think it was uh, his Renault sort of gyrated in front of him I think Bottas's reaction then meant that the Mercedes sort of spun almost in sympathy um, and Ocon was able to sort of keep going ahead Bottas had to sort of swing the car back around and get going again and yeah that was costly and uh obviously cost him a load of time put him back but the 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 real the, the the real race wrecker was what happened half a lap later i was following bottas on board and he got a really good run on was it leclerc's ferrari coming out of turn eight and he moved to the left the quite far to the left on the run down to the slow left hander at turn nine which I should point out 
was catching people out all weekend, even in the dry, because it was you know, it's that big stop and the, the grip just goes, the rear goes really, really light. Um, uh, and I just saw Bottas go for it on the inside of the Ferrari and I think that's just, he's never going to get that stops. And uh, sure enough, <laughs> uh, all of a sudden, you're just waiting for that moment for the, you're waiting for a brake to lock. You don't know whether it'll be the front brakes or the rear brakes, but you know it's coming because he's taking way too much speed into the corner. And sure enough, the rear's lock. He slides a little bit, sails past the Ferrari and just slides into the absolutely helpless Ocon who for the second time in half a lap was facing the wrong way through no fault of his own. And I think Mark's got a better understanding of the impact than the, the, than I do. But yeah, Bottas picked up damage in that incident and it preceded a miserable race in which I think he spun a total of six times. I thought he was just totally bereft of, of confidence, couldn't get the tyres to work, which I think is only really half the story because it wasn't, let's say it wasn't exactly his his fault thereafter that, that he was struggling so much. Yeah, he'd, um, he'd, he'd damaged the steering. He'd done a bit of aerodynamic damage as well, the front wing end plate, but he'd, he'd damaged the steering and basically it meant that he could only get so much opposite lock on then he ran out of lock because of the, it wasn't it didn't have its full range. So if he had it sliding too much, he would just spin because he couldn't put, physically put any more lock on. Um so he was trying to drive it within those limitations, but obviously that's not, that's not ideal on, on such a slippery surface because you, you need to have the confidence that you can correct a slide if, if you know if one happens. And so he had this was why he had these six spins. But more than that, on a car that was taken, we, we saw with Hamilton, seven laps to get its tires up to temperature. Every time he had a spin you'd lose the benefit of those seven laps that you've just spent getting the tyres up to temperature when the car's whole seconds off the pace, not just a few tenths, like chunks, three, four, five seconds off the pace. And you gradually hone it down over seven laps. And then you spin and you're starting again from scratch. So um, six six spins... Um, you know, I think if, if you're talking about how much, how much time he's lost, he's, he's probably... He's probably spent 42 of the 50, how many was 53 laps? 42 of the 53 laps trying to get the tyre temperatures back that he just lost through spinning. So, um, yeah, that's, that's, why, that's why he had the race that he did. Yeah, horrible day for, for Bottas. Just pick up some of the, the stragglers. It's funny, actually, in that race, which is you think, oh, it's going to be a chaos race, wet race, great opportunity for the, the three slowest teams. And then if you look at the, uh, the bottom six names on the results sheet, three of them didn't finish. Uh, three of them did. It's it's the three Class C teams: uh, Alfa Romeo, Williams, and Haas. Kimi Raikkonen qualified really well. That the Alfa was working the tyres well in qualifying, but in the race they just couldn't get the fronts to work, and and Raikkonen slid down to to fifteenth place. Antonio Giovinazzi didn't last very long. He retired with a gearbox problem, but he, he had an off and damaged his front wing on a reconnaissance lap, which was fairly embarrassing, but perhaps not the most embarrassing moment for a Class C runner. Uh, Mark, did you enjoy George Russell's David Coulthard Adelaide Pit Lane Tribute Act? <laughs> yeah. yeah, I mean, it was just, I felt sorry for him because it was just so much. He had a little little bit of a slide coming into the right hand before the, the, the left in the pit lane itself. And by the time he'd sorted that out, he couldn't get the thing slowed in time, but it was we're talking getting it slowed in time. We're talking walking pace, which is what he described it as. 
and it just wouldn't turn in. That's how little grip there was, and he you know, crunched the nose. And so, but he, he got it going again and back down to the pit lane. But by the time they got that fixed, pit lane was closed. So yeah, yeah, not not a great start for poor old George. Actually, he did say he was going to start from the pit lane anyway, because they wanted to start on the on the hot intermediates. But that wasn't immediately okay. that wasn't immediately apparent because it did look for all the world like he caused it himself. I certainly thought that at the time, but I had the advantage of uh, speaking to him after the race. And Kevin Magnussen was classified seventeenth. He had the I think there was a. A problem with the wheel after a pit stop uh slightly lost track of what was going on there but yeah he he said he didn't know exactly what had gone wrong and uh, roman grosjean and nicholas latifi they had a coming together actually grosjean was lapping latifi at that point but latifi said that he was just struggling to see because he just had all sorts of dirt and everything on his wing mirrors and when he said when he was being lapped he was just guessing where people were and that's what led to the the clash with grosjean who had a, a pretty difficult weekend he of course caused one of the red flags in uh, in Q1 with I was watching on board at the time an admirably committed run into turn one it was one of those ones we're always jumping well, I, I always jump around the onboard cameras in qualifying so I have an advantage there of watching Grosjean and I thought you haven't broke you haven't break there's no way you're making this call he said oh front locks and it's like no you are never going to make that uh, that corner but it's very easy on the outside to criticize just quite enjoyable to watch so no points for the uh, the struggling teams this weekend and there probably wasn't ever really in the race once it settled down much opportunity magnuson was probably the strongest actually he had a a good performance he was he was probably justifiably irritated in qualifying because he was set to make q2 and then got shuffled down he backed off uh, yellow flags he felt some others didn't and there were a few who were maybe fortunate to get away with yellow flag infringements some did some didn't so yeah a a good cameo from magnuson as, as he's often done in the first part of races there's a little bit of any other business to attend to. I'm going to set Scott Mitchell off on this just by mentioning the word crane to him. Can you can you tell a story of the, the start of Q2, please? Uh, okay, yeah. Um, so uh, I would imagine that everybody listening now is, is aware of what happened at the start of Q2 where the, the cars were released from the pit lane and then as they approached turn eight, you know, the, the famously fast and difficult left hand quadruple left hand turn eight there were double waved yellows and on the outside of the corner at the edge of the runoff um the the recovery of latifi's crashed williams from the end of q1 hadn't been completed so the the recovery vehicle was still effectively in use and the marshals were obviously therefore around as well which caused a mix of confusion confusion and scorn i think amongst the the drivers but also several of us watching on and it was explained away that evening michael masley the race director i i I was quite surprised that he sort of effectively named and shamed because he said it was the clerk of the course had given him the instruction that the crane should be out of harm's way by the time the cars got to the got to turn eight because it was making its way to an opening in the barrier so they they released the cars green light there you go away crack on um and ba- they, whatever for whatever reason there was a delay in the recovery vehicle moving which meant that uh they that Mazzy needed to basically scramble the double waved yellows at turn 8 for that section of the track uh to slow the ca- or to basically ensure that the cars were were, were going slowly because the un- unexpectedly the the recovery vehicle was still in use and I think maybe my tone sort of gives it away, but I just find it incredible 
that it's considered it was considered acceptable to just take that risk. I, if if the justification for for doing that was that it would take forty seconds or so, however long it takes for cars on an outlap to get from the pit lane to turn eight to clear that recovery vehicle, why not just wait forty seconds and start Q two forty seconds later? It couldn't possibly have been that pressed for for daylight, even though Q one had already been delayed that that far so i found that to be an an, an unjustifiable and indefensible decision and i'm therefore really surprised that mazzy came out on sunday evening after the drivers had criticized it and after sebastian vettel had said it was a zero tolerance mistake and mazzy basically defended the logic from saturday evening saying that he was um i forget the exact uh, phrase he said he was more than comfortable with starting Q2 based on the assurances he'd been given by the clerk of the course. But unfortunately, assurances in that manner are nothing more than assumptions, which means that you're willingly taking a risk. And I I just find that pretty unacceptable, to be honest. I'm going to choose my words very carefully on this, because yes, I agree with you, Scott. I have to look back to what happened to Joe Bianchi. The reason is, not saying that for a fact, in the investigations after that, the FIA recognised that they needed not to have cars at speed when there were mobile cranes, tractors or whatever, recovery vehicles within the bounds of the circuit, and that these would normally be covered by VSCs and safety cars. That was a very, very sensible move. Everything else in the circuit, everything that's normally in the circuit, is designed to be hit. Cars are designed to hit barriers. Barriers are designed to be hit. Cars are designed to hit each other. That's controlled as far as you can. But these recovery vehicles are a a factor that's not accounted for, and there's no way you can protect them. It was very, very sensible to move away from ever having the risk of that happening. So for me, for there to be any any risk of sending cars out when they had to keep tyre temperature, when that was a real struggle, I don't care that it was an outlap, they were still pushing on. And you don't need to have actually that much speed for something terrible to happen if, if there is an impact. It's unlikely, but you never know. So the safety standard for that is, is that vehicle off the track? Not is it going to be off the track in a couple of minutes, or in a couple of seconds even, just wait till it's off and go. Very, very, very simple. I don't think that's a with hindsight thing. And that's why it concerns me, because this is a lesson that's been been learned. So, yeah, it just it's just a little bit frustrating. And Mark, it's a very tough job being the race director, and it's very, very easy to criticise the decisions with hindsight. And sometimes the criticism is a little bit unfair, but it, it is a little bit worrying that we've had a few of these decisions recently. We had the, the issue at Imola with... Stroll going past the the marshals, the question marks over the Magello restart, etc. How, how do you see it? Do you think they need to be just looking at just tightening some of these things up a little bit, or is it just these things happens happen in in race circuits? No, I think this particular one is is as I said, but it did zero tolerance. It's 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 black or white really. Um, the other ones you could argue the the, the Magello and the Imola ones, yeah, the Imola one. Um, was more of an oversight rather than a you know a clear decision. It was more, more a situation that hadn't been thought through. Um, Jello on, yeah, probably. In hindsight, you would have done it differently, um, but it's yeah. I think the the disturbing thing about this one is that it's is a lesson that had already been learned. Um, so, why why is it happening? You know. Why was a situation, the potential situation there again? And I think um, a more 
um, accepting accepting that you've made a mistake. I think I think it's it's important. Everybody makes mistakes, and I think it's um, it's important you recognize it and, and um, front up to them when you do. And um, yeah, uh, it is a very tough job, and um, but that's you know that that is the job. It, it can't it can't be covered. It can't this particular incident can't be covered over. It it it's uh, it has to be absolutely nailed on from from now on. Yeah, and it, and to be honest, it's an easy one to deal with. You could just say, yeah, actually, we shouldn't have done that. In future, we will make absolutely sure that it's confirmed off the track and have some kind of process where there's the clerk of the course or whatever gives that confirmation to the race director. You could very easily do it. I do find it strange they're in such a such a hurry, given that. Q1 could have restarted after the rain a bit earlier. So they, they weren't in that much of a hurry there, which just seemed a, a little bit odd. But anyway, hopefully some good uh, good will come out of that. Nothing went wrong, fortunately, so that, that's a positive. But yeah, one of those things to, uh, to to keep an eye out for. So coming back around to, to where we started, Lewis Hamilton's won the World Championship. This has been on the cards for uh, a very, very long time. I guess we should just have a very brief throw forward as it were because there's there's just no sign of this stopping is there Scott he's he said himself I think he's at his peak he wants to keep going and this Hamilton era you know it's very very hard it's not impossible but it's very hard to see it ending next year isn't it yeah absolutely um we've we had that sort of a bit of fun in games a couple of weeks ago when Lewis was sort of hinting at uh you know no guarantee I'll still be around and there's obviously something going on in the in the background in that he doesn't he's been in no rush to commit his future because I don't think he fully knows exactly what it wants maybe maybe because maybe because he hasn't totally thought about it maybe because he just genuinely isn't that committed to being an F1 for another three years especially but after this title um he has he's made it clear that you know he's basically pledged to 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 get a new deal together he said him and mercedes he said that him and mercedes are going to get it done um he wants to be around he wants to keep doing what he's doing with with the team you know they've they've got such such a great relationship and and chemistry but he also he is also incredibly incredibly committed to the off track side of things he really wants to make a difference there um, it's easy for people to say that he, you know, where was this years ago? Why is he only doing it now? Oh, it's only because it's a global movement. Well, that is kind of the point. He has been, he has got massively caught up in it. He He's become emboldened by it. He's become heavily invested by it. He's been spurred into this much action because of a resurgent global movement fighting for equality. And he wants to be a part of that. He wants F1 to be a part of that. He wants Mercedes to be a part of that. So he's going to be around for a little bit longer because he's got work to do on track and off track. And that might sound ridiculous for a seven-time world champion who's got a bigger platform and done more for for for, for F1's reputation and efforts in, in efforts like diversity than any other driver. And yet he's still pushing for more. But that's the reason he's a seven-time world champion because he doesn't uh, he doesn't settle for... But good enough. Good enough is never good enough. Absolutely. Brilliant for Formula One on and off track. But Mark, the question now really is, when is this going to end? Obviously, 2022 is the big question. But if Mercedes and Hamilton are still together, which they probably will be in 2022, yeah, there's new rules, etc. Big question marks. But the reasons that make this team so strong at the moment 
there's no specific reason why they shouldn't carry over into 2022, is there? So you are at a point where you do wonder where there's no way of knowing exactly when the end of this is going to be. Yeah, I agree. I think it um, it comes to an end when when he wants it to. I think it really is in his hands. Um, and the only way it might um, he might get more of a challenge is if um, for 2022 he gets. Um, you know, a Max Verstappen in there alongside him, and and and, and it's more, you know, you, you see a sort of Prost Senna situation, um, where where they they they're going at it every race in equal cars, and that would be fantastic to see, but I doubt whether we'll ever see it. Um, so yes, I think as you say, this is the best team. It's the be- it's 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 got where it where it's got for a reason. Um, Hamilton's very much part of it. Is very much um, an intrinsic part of it and driving it forward. And yeah, I mean, I think it'll continue to dominate until um, until one or the other decides to stop. Or unless Valtteri Bottas, four point naught or whatever we're due to see next season, steps up to the plate. You you never know. But Valtteri's got an almost impossible task taking on Lewis Hamilton. But an amazing day. Seven well, it's just been we've said this on so many post race podcasts, it's just been equaling the record of wins, breaking the record of wins, constructors' titles, seventh world championship. So uh yeah, the, the superlatives we ran out of some some episodes ago. Scott even tried making some superlatives up recently, and we're probably gonna do a little bit more of that when we talk about this on next week's episode when we, we delve into Hamilton slightly more broadly than we've been able to do on this episode. Do head to the race's website, that's therace.com, and don't forget the hyphen, loads to read on there, Mark Hughes race analysis, my driver racings will be up in the morning, as ever Scott Mitchell's got a big bag of random tricks he'll deploy on the uh, on the site so you can look forward to what's on there, we may even see something from Gary Anderson as well, who was very much enjoying trying to call strategy uh, watching at home and doing quite a good job of it in terms of the need to look after the intermediates, he was certainly on the right track. Do also check out some of our sister podcasts, including the Gary Anderson F1 show and Bring Back V10s, which tells classic F1 stories. And check out our YouTube channel as well. Just search for The Race. Thanks for listening. We'll be back next week with the look at Lewis Hamilton.